listening to Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, showing you how to stand up and speak out in a sit-down, shut-up world with power, truth, and love. To request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Hey everybody, Michael Anthony here with the Courage Matters Podcast, and I'm super excited today to have David Burkus with us. David, welcome. Good to have you here on this program. Oh, Michael, thank you so much for having me. Everybody, I want to give you an idea of who David Burkus is if you're not familiar with him. If you already are, you're a huge fan because of what he's written, what he's spoken about. David Burkus is a best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. His forthcoming book is called Friend of a Friend, and it offers readers a new perspective on how to grow their networks and build key connections. Connections that are based on the science of human behavior, not rote networking advice. That is refreshing right there. I'm interested in jumping into that. David's delivered keynotes to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies and the future leaders of the United States Naval Academy. Now listen to this, everybody. His TED Talk, many of you watch TED Talks. David Berkus's TED Talk has been viewed by over 1.8 million people, 1.8 million times, and you're a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. David, that's a pretty impressive bio, and it looks like you're using your platform to try to reach people and help them become better leaders and better individuals, right? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I And I assure you it was not just one person watching it at 1.8 million times. I assure you that I don't just... <laughs> Hide out in my in my office and click refresh. <laughs> well, I'm just kidding. Although I probably should. I, I believe it. Well, you, more often. If people read your longer bio, they would understand that you're the author of Under New Management, The Myths of Creativity, and you're you're not only a regular contributor for the Harvard Business Review, but your work's been featured in Fast Company, Financial Times, Inc. Magazine, Bloomberg, Business Week, and CBS This Morning. That's pretty significant. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, listen, let's talk a little bit about your latest book, uh, Friend of a Friend. Tell us about that. Tell us what inspired you to write that book. Yeah, I mean, the, the big idea is that we need to redefine networking, right? So if you think about, for a lot of people, networking is a four-letter word. I mean, it's a ten-letter word, but mm-hmm. they treat it like it's a four-letter word, right? Mm-hmm. They Maybe they've, they've gone to an event and they felt really uncomfortable, or maybe they've read one or two of the sort of networking advice books, and then you go try and put that into practice, and you feel sort of really weird and inauthentic, which is sort of no wonder, right? You're, you're reading a book by somebody else and then trying to pretend to be them in that situation. No wonder you feel inauthentic, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people just stop there and go, okay, well, you know, for, forget it. This isn't for me. This isn't really what I want to be about. And I think it's because a lot of us have the wrong mentality. Networking shouldn't be about... Uh, running up the count, the number of connections you have on LinkedIn or the number of people that you can put a name to a face with. It's really more about understanding where you are inside the existing network, whether that be your industry, your community, you know, geography, whatever it is. It's more about understanding the whole network that you're a part of and then figuring out how to respond accordingly. So what I, what I tell a lot of people is like, 
You can't build your network. You don't have a network. You exist inside of a network, and your job is to serve that network, to respond accordingly, to put value to that network and trust that it'll come back to you. I think that's a huge thing for people to understand because today, especially with social media, it's about likes and follows and uh, speed, size, and numbers. But you say something very interesting in the first chapter that I think is a pivotal moment for readers as they go through your book, Friend of a Friend. Uh, You present this idea that to make your network effective, or I guess the way you would say it is to make yourself effective within the network where you exist, that your old friends can actually be better than your new friends. Speak to that a little bit. In light of the big push today, speed size numbers, more likes, more follows, speak about the significance of your old friends in regard to having an effective network. Yeah, and, and in particular, when we're, when we're talking about old friends, we're talking about a very specific type of old friend, which in the network science research is referred to as a weak tie or a dormant tie. And these are people that you know, uh, but you don't know that well. Those are weak ties. So this is like the the person who works at your company, but they're on a different floor, and you only ever see them when there's cake in the break room, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or these are the people um, that maybe you go to the gym, and you know their name, and sometimes you might spot them, or they spot you, but you don't really know much about them. Those are your weak ties. And they're dormant ties. Dormant ties are people that maybe you knew really well, but for some reason or another, that relationship fell by the wayside. And, you know... Other than running up the numbers on sort of vanity metrics like you were talking about with social media, why do we think we need to meet new people? Well, we want to meet new people because of new opportunities, new information, uh, et cetera. And it, it turns out that those weak ties and dormant ties are a hugely potent source of that new information, et cetera. You know them, they're your friends, but they're usually mm-hmm. not talking to them very often. They're somewhere else in the network, and they're going to be able to provide you with that same sources of new information. Mm-hmm. The difference is you don't really have to go through all that weird rapport building stage and feel all awkward at that dating for professional thing to meet them. Mm-hmm. You already know them. They're already your friends. You just have to make it a point to keep reestablishing those relationships. And so I think it's a, it's a much more comfortable position for people. I don't actually think you need to meet very many total strangers ever again if you do a great job of reengaging your weak ties and a great job of sort of exploring the fringes of your networks for introductions to new people. But you probably don't need to head to those networking mixers ever again. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's say somebody is having this epiphany. They're reading your book or they read your book, Friend of a Friend, and they're realizing, hey, I already exist within a network. How do I fire up the people that you refer to? You say that that the research suggests that most connected people inside a tight group within a single industry are less valuable than the people who bridge gaps between groups You talk about that in your book, okay? What are some examples of that? Somebody's thinking about their network. They're thinking about old relationships versus new relationships. What am I supposed to do with this information? I'm trying to maximize my network for my good, my service, my product, whatever it is that I have. What does that look like for me? Yeah, so you know, there's a certain point as you're as you're meeting people inside your industry where uh, the sociologist Ronald Burt uses the term redundancy, right? After, after a certain level of getting to know people, every time you, you know a new person, there's really not access to new information. There's not access to new perspectives as much. There's a, there's a diminishing return on meeting new people inside that one industry. Mm-hmm. When that happens, it's usually a good time to start thinking about what are other networks or other clusters? Maybe that's other industries. Maybe it's other geographies. Maybe it's other communities that I can be a now be a bridge between these two communities, the one that I know a good percentage of people in 
and a new one. So, I mean, to give you an example, in, in the book we talk about Jane McGonigal, who is an amazing person, brilliant woman. She's a game designer, so she designs video games and real life, you know, uh, games and simulations, board games, etc. And uh, early on in her career, actually, you know, pretty early on in her career, she had a she got a concussion. Mm-hmm. And pretty serious concussion. She's having, you know, nausea and vomiting. It's not getting any better. Days turn into weeks, turn into months. Eventually, she actually says, like, these words come out of her mouth. I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to turn this into a game. Mm-hmm. And she uses her skills as a game designer to design a game that incentivizes her to do the things doctors need her to do to get better. Right now, once the game sort of happens and it works well for her, she shares it with a few other people. They use it for recovering from similar traumas. And now Jane goes, okay, well, I'm pretty well connected to this game community, and that's helped me spread this thing, but I need to build a bridge to the actual medical community, to the mental health profession in particular. Mm-hmm. And now she's begun the work of collaborating with researchers, doing like large-scale, double-blind, placebo-controlled, every, every control you need in medicine studies to prove that this sort of system and this game that she's designing really does help with the recovery process. So she herself is a bridge between the game community and the mental health community has unlocked a tremendous amount of value for, for everybody who's ever been trying to recover from something chronic. And that's also sort of excelled her career and her leadership as well. So how are people supposed to, to network when it comes to old relationships, new relationships? What are you recommending for them? Um, how do they fire up and maximize the network that they're already in? Yeah, so I, I mean, again, I think one of the best things that you can do is to be engaging in those weak ties and allowing introductions to come to you. And when I say engaging in those weak times, I don't mean like, okay, send an email to a person you haven't talked to in a while because you heard this podcast and this guy Dave Burkett said that I should do this, right? Mm -hmm. This is actually where I believe that social media can be a benefit. I don't think it's about more and better and newer, et cetera, and running up the number of friends you have. But if you think about it, most of those networks contain a ton of information about what your weak ties are up to. There are people publicly broadcasting that, hey, we're about to go take a vacation in Hawaii, or I'm getting a new job and we're moving to Chicago, right? And those are opportunities. Rather than just click like or say congratulations and make little balloons go off on Facebook like you always do, right? Those are opportunities to reach back out to them with a phone call or an email or a text message, whatever's a little bit more intimate. And to re-engage that tie and say something like, hey, you know, I just saw that you're you're moving to Chicago. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Uh, I'll give you a pro tip. The best pizza is Gino's East, so don't waste your time with all those other ones. Blue <laughs> Mamati is a close second, right? So you say something sort of valuable and you go, you know, what else is new with you? I'd love to catch up. So you use that information that they're broadcasting as a means to have a sort of deeper, more intimate connection. So reaching back out to those weak ties is, I think, one. The other thing is is to be constantly sort of exploring the fringes of your network. So asking in conversation, whether these are close contacts or, or those weak ties, asking a lot of times, hey, who do you know in blank, with blank being whatever industry or sector that you're wanting to get to know a few more people in? You're not asking for an introduction. You're just trying to get people that you don't know to be sort of on your radar so you have an idea of where you need to go if you need to start getting connections to a certain industry. What do you recommend with terms of building your network? I mean, it's a lot of work, obviously. Somebody might be listening right now and saying, oh, my goodness, uh, this is like a full-time job. And it is, really. I mean, it, we're talking about life here is what you're talking about. What means should people be using? What are the most effective means that people should be using to expand their network, to build it, strengthen it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know that, that it's definitely something that's intentional, and I think you need to be about that. It's really not that time-intensive. I mean, when we think about reaching back out 
sweet ties. You know, what I just described takes about 90 seconds, right? If you're mindlessly scrolling through Facebook or LinkedIn anyway, right? So you've got the app on your phone and you're scrolling through to see what's new. It takes about 90 seconds to switch over to a more personal medium, maybe more if you're doing a phone call. But we're not talking about a long period of time. I think the second thing that people need to do is to set aside time to pursue what in, in the book we call these shared activities, not these sort of rote networking events that sort of feel like speed dating, right, mm-hmm. where everybody's just trying to meet new people. Mm-hmm. Engaging in what is the trade association for your industry? What is the uh, the charity that most people in your industry support where you could go and actually volunteer time and meet new people, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Things that draw people for a deeper, bigger reason than just meeting people actually tend to, in, to get you connected to more diverse people and, and build a deeper relationship faster. So pursuing those, I mean, that can be as little as, you know, take an hour a month, right? So we're not talking about a huge amount of time. I will say that it's important to have a very intentional mindset. You know, like a lot of people say, well, I don't, I don't want to have this intentional sort of networking thing because then I'll feel inauthentic. Well, try, you know, if you're married, try telling that to your spouse, right? Mm-hmm. Try telling that to your, your wife or your husband that, you know what? I, I forgot your birthday. I didn't get a card because I wanted to organically remember. Like that, mm-hmm. that's not going to go over well. Right? Mm-hmm. I think every relationship is the same way. We, we, all, we actually signal that people are important to us by doing intentional things um, to, to keep in touch with them, to send them uh, you know, a quick, I was thinking of you, or here's a quick piece of advice, et cetera. So there's a real benefit to intentionality. It sends that signal that you actually do want to invest in this relationship. And I think all relationships are that way. Your, your closest ones you obviously want to be more intentional with, but almost any of the ones that you want to keep in touch with, you should be intentional about. Well, let's talk about this in, in regard to it's not as much work as somebody might think. Let's talk about the flywheel principle, all right? You, you talk about the flywheel principle at work, that it gets easier as you go building your network. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so there's a really fascinating uh, phenomenon in networks that's called preferential attachment. And this is really fancy. I mean, it's like a $15 phrase, right? You can sound really smart at a party. <laughs> what it basically means is that the people who are kind of towards the center of a network, the people who are the most connected over time, are more likely to have new introductions come to them, right? This makes sense. If, if you're at a party and somebody walks in the room and they're a total stranger, like you're going to introduce them to the host. So the people in any network that are the most connected, they're more likely to get introduced to new people as they enter the network. Now, what this means is that those people that you look at and you're like, oh, this whole thing just comes so easy to you and you know everybody and you're always getting introduced and going to these you know, events and all of that sort of stuff. The, the reason that those people have that is that preferential attachment is now working in their favor. They've, they've put enough effort on the, on the front end. It's almost like you know, uh, gravitational mass, right? You get to a certain critical mass and things start getting attracted to that thing and suddenly you have a planet, right? Mm-hmm. Or like an investment fund. You you put the dollars in on the front end, eventually compound interest is earning you more than what your investment in, is. Connections kind of work the exact same way. So if it seems like it's really easy to everybody, that's there to, to other people, that's probably true because those people have put in the work. And it's also good news for you. It means if you start getting intentional over time, that intentionality will compound and you have to, you can actually scale back how much effort you have to put into it and more allow people to sort of come to you. Makes sense. That makes sense. Let's, let's talk about, let's go a little bit deeper in that. When you talk about being a super connector in regard to growing your network large enough to be what you would refer to as a super connector network, what does that mean to be a super connector and how can the average person do that? Become a super connector in regard to networking? Yeah, so, so super connectors are those people at the center of the network, right? This is the, the fancy network science term for that person that's leveraging preferential attachment. We, we tend to think about 
um, the number of relationships someone can have is maybe an average, meaning like an inverted U, right? So there's a there's an average, and then some people are above average, some people are below, but they all kind of cluster around this normal thing. In reality, as we've been studying the number of connections people have, it actually graphs a bit more like a power law, which is that some people really do have a disproportionate number of contacts uh, than, than everybody else. And they skew the average. They're actually what makes it what, what makes it look like people that you might be bad at this because you're looking at the average and the average high, is higher than you because of those certain people are sort of skewing the average. So, I mean, that's good news for everybody, mm-hmm. whether you're super connected or not. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the lesson is that over time, as you make those investments, especially as you start to be intentional about taking care of the network and being sure to introduce other people to each other. You know, the, the one trait when I was researching the book that I heard almost every person that I would define as a super connector in their industry, the one trait I heard that almost all of them have in common is that when they're talking to someone, they're not thinking about how this person can help me or how, or even how I can help them. They're thinking about who is someone that I know that this person would really benefit from connecting from. Mm-hmm. So they're providing a tremendous amount of value just by connecting two people that are in their orbit to each other. Mm-hmm. And then over time, because they're being really generous with their contacts, more introductions start to come their way too and it compounds with that preferential attachment effect. Well, that's one of the reasons why I was excited about interviewing you for this podcast because one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is connect people to develop their courage, to develop their leadership capability, their their ability to interact with other people with healthy relationship skills. So the things that you're talking about speak right to that. That's why I'm so appreciative of your time here. Yeah, no, you, you are, you're on an amazing track with that because, I mean, it, it pays to be a community builder, not just because you're doing great work and that work exceeds you when you build it as a community, but then you become sort of known as that person that is connecting that community. So you're, you're a, a fantastic sort of case in point in what you're trying to do. And over time, it's just going to compound and grow like crazy. Well, that's what we hope. We're trying to, trying to bless people. You know, I think that if you give away more than you get, you end up getting more than you deserve from the get go, you know? So appreciate that. Hey, listen, chapter eight was really interesting because you talk about the illusion of majority. All right. The benefits of focusing on a few of the right connections and this quote unquote illusion of the majority. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So this is probably one of the more fascinating um, insights from the world of network science that, that we address in the book, which is essentially, you know, we are humans are tribal creatures. We take our cues on how popular something is, how um, how well-known, how connected someone is, et cetera, based on what people around us are doing. And so if you think about a network and you think about the super connectors that we just described, if they're disproportionately connected to other people, then other people are taking their cues disproportionately from those few people. And so what we've seen over time in studying networks is that if you target certain people and make them active. Active is the fancy network science term for maybe they know or are promoting something. Maybe they are subscribing to sort of certain lifestyle, whatever. Maybe they buy a certain mm-hmm. brand, like they have a, an iPhone instead of an Android or, or what have you. What we tend to see is that even in situations where the majority of people in the network do not actually um, have that active thing, maybe they're, the majority of the people are actually Android users, right? Yeah, because people are taking their cues off of other people and those super connected people have a disproportionate influence on that, if you target the right people, you can actually look sort of far more popular than you are, right? And so in the book, we talk about a couple people that leveraged this early on in their career. Tim Ferriss is, is now sort of super popular in a variety of fields, but there was a time where he was only targeting the network of 18 to 35-year-old tech-savvy males, right, which is a very small 
percentage of the mass audience, but that's all he was concerned with, and he sort of targeted it appropriately. And, you know, we, we also talk about, it's it's um, not exactly popular, I didn't plan this well, it's not exactly popular to talk about Facebook right now. Everybody's a little worried about them, mm-hmm. but when they were rolling out, one of the things that they did was they moved uh, very slowly from university campus to university campus, and the reason is that they figured out that they could get market saturation and appear to be the hot, cool, new thing on that campus much faster than if they were just going from zero to open to the whole country all at once. Mm. And so they very slowly moved from campus to campus to leverage that majority illusion and look like the cooler, more popular thing than they already were. And it, I mean, it paid off. Very few people talk about Friendster or MySpace anymore, except mm. in business history books. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Hey, listen, I have one more question about networking and then a fun question as we start to wrap things up here. Um, you say that we tend to assume that having a large growing network is synonymous with surrounding ourselves or requires surrounding ourselves with people who have a diverse set of views, a variety of perspectives. But that's often not the case. And you say that opposites rarely attract. Is that what you're trying to suggest? Yeah. So this, I believe, is one of the most important insights in the book for leaders specifically. Right. We know it's 2018. We know that we need diverse perspectives. We need to have people around us who are ideologically, racially, ethnically, gender diverse. We we need that in order to make good decisions. We need a diversity of information so we can see the whole picture. Now, I won't say everyone agrees on that. 99.9 percent of people. Uh, that if, if you don't, I, I can't help you. I got nothing for you. Mm. But if you're in that group of people, mm. right, one of the things that was most surprising to me is that often even when you are intentionally trying to meet new people in order to get those higher levels of diversity in whatever the field is, again, ideologically, gender, racial, what, what have you, surface level or deep cognitive diversity, what have you, often we end up sort of because diversity becomes a network problem, we end up not having access to as much information as we think even when we're trying. And here's what I mean by that. The close friends, the people that are the closest to you tend to think most like you, um, tend to have the same opinions of you, the same, or would make the same decision as you. And, and this makes sense, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, if someone thinks like me, then clearly they're brilliant, right? So <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yeah. But what happens over time is those people become your source of new referrals, right? So you meet new people through those same people. Who are they referring you to? They're referring you to people that are often a lot like you. And so what we've seen in in what we call longitudinal studies, studies done over a, a long period of time, we see that even when there's a desire for some level of new connections in order to bring in diversity, we end up not getting as much as we think because there's this sort of compounding effect to getting more and more self-similar introductions made. As a leader, one of the things that we really need to do is look at, okay, who are the people I'm talking the most with? Where do they stand on all of these issues on levels of whether it's an ideological diversity or what have you? And what you'll probably find is that you're not actually talking to as diverse a set of people as you think you are. You're talking to a few but not the majority, and and so now we need to start spending a disproportionate amount of time with those people who are different than us mm-hmm. so that we hear them more often so that they become a source of new introductions and we can actually kind of fight the network effect uh, that's happening and we can get access to more information. Fascinating, encouraging, practical. David Burkus, you are rocking it, my friend. i, I got to ask you a personal question. What are you doing to keep yourself from being burnt out as you're looking at all this networking stuff and giving all this great content to people and lecturing being a keynote speaker, what do you do for fun? What do you do to unwind and keep yourself fresh? 
Well, I do. I mean, I do a couple different things for fun. Uh, I've been doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the last uh, 11 years. It's yeah. a fantastic workout. It's sort of like uh, I describe it a lot of times as full contact yoga. Now, say that again. It's called what? It's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Remind me not to get into a street fight with you. I know, right? Um, so that's a good uh, that's a good way to uh, exercise to keep from burning out, et cetera. I mean, I'll tell you honestly though, the biggest thing that I do is we have a routine in my family when we put our two boys to bed every night. They we ask them what was the favorite part of your day, and about a year ago they got old enough to start demanding that we answer that question too. Mm-hmm. So now I basically have to find something that a six year old would find cool mm-hmm. and add that to my day every single day so that I have something to tell him at night. Uh-huh. Honestly, when you live your life trying to impress a six year old, you have a pretty cool life. You really <laughs> do. And so that helps a lot as well. Fantastic. David, uh, your book is friend of a friend. How do people connect with you? How do they get the book? Yeah, so uh, the best place to find me would be davidberkus.com, D-A-V-I-D-B-U-R-K-U-S.com. If you type that into any retailer that you like, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, what have you, you'll, you'll definitely find the book. But if you go to davidberkus.com, you'll also find ways to get in touch with me and keep the conversation going as well. Well, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you blessing our listener audience for the Courage Matters podcast. And would you come back in the future? I mean, we've got to talk here for hours and hours. Would you be willing to come back and talk some more? Yeah, yeah, no, I'd love that. I'd love that. I'd love to hear people. I, I can't wait to hear people's thoughts as they listen to it, too, and reach out to me. So, yeah, let's keep the conversation going. I mean, we don't even talk today about teams and the longevity of teams, the brevity of teams, and their value. That's, that's for a whole other day. So, you know, David is a guy that's got, you've got depth to you. You're not cotton candy. And that's one of the things that drew me to you and said, I wanted to have somebody of your caliber and depth here on the podcast. So really appreciative of you, David. Wish you tremendous success with Friend of a Friend and all that you're touching as you help people become better relationally, uh, network with real meaning and substance, not just for speed size and numbers, because that's what I think you're saying through all of this in genuineness and authenticity. And I think there's a reason why you were you were chosen as one of the nation's top 40 under 40 professors who inspire. You've been inspiring to me. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you again so much for having me, too. My pleasure. God bless you, David. You too. To request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. If you enjoyed this message, check out Michael Anthony's Bible teaching podcast, too. 